Welcome and thanks for joining us for Women and Books, a podcast that takes you on a tour of reading women from the 15th to the 18th century. I'm pleased to introduce my fellow Bugbeckians and avid readers, Mac Clancy and Lou Horton, who will join me on our rummage through the bookshelves of three high-profile women readers. Matt has just completed his PhD at Birkbeck School of Arts. He works on medieval objects associated with the King Arthur traditions and the question of whether medieval people believed in Arthur. Lou is currently working on a PhD on the kinship and patronage networks of the patron and Protestant reformer Catherine Willoughby and has published a number of essays on the material history of women's writing. I'm Eva Lauenstein and I completed my PhD in English and Humanities at Birkbeck in 2019 and just finished a six-month Welcome Trust Fellowship project that investigates the relationship between mortuary culture, gender and melancholy. Together, we intend to show you how women reached for books that shaped three centuries of English literary, devotional and political history. We want to explore how reading made women participants in shaping these developments. We'll move from Catherine Neville's lavish medieval book of hours and Mildred Cecil's post-Reformation collection of theological texts to Molly White, an 18th century editor, and her thoughts on the English literary canon. Doing so, we hope to show that the books we choose to read, buy, gift and translate shape and influence the shared cultures we create and live. Reading is never an entirely solitary or passive pastime. As we shall see, women used reading to craft their place in the professional, religious, political and social circles to which they belonged. All our presentations are made available in written form alongside the podcast. If our talks have piqued your interest in any or all women we look at today, that's great. We've included a couple of resources to get you going on your research adventure in our appendix. Now, without further ado, let's begin our journey by turning the illuminated pages of Catherine Neville's late medieval primer. Thanks, Eva. It's great to be here as part of this podcast. And I have our earliest example today, Catherine Neville, Baroness Hastings, who lived from 1442 to 1504. This means that she lived through one of the most turbulent periods of British history, the civil war that we now know as the Wars of the Roses. Catherine herself was at the heart of this period of violent upheaval, and we can gain a real sense of her place in events by looking at her books. Catherine was the younger sister of Richard Neville, Earl of Warwick, who we now know as the kingmaker for his role in placing Edward IV of York on the throne in 1461, and later in briefly restoring Edward's rival, Henry VI of Lancaster, to the throne in 1470. Warwick was executed when Edward himself was restored the following year, but Catherine had no such conflicting loyalties, and she remains loyal to the Yorkist faction. Catherine's first marriage was to William Bonville, Lord Harrington, who was killed in the Yorkist feat at the Battle of Wakefield in 1460, alongside Catherine's father. So Catherine became a widow at 18, as well as having really close personal ties to the Yorkist cause. She soon remarries to William Baron Hastings, who lived from 1431 to 1483. Even more so than Bonville, Hastings was one of Edward's closest allies. 
and with Edward's accession to the throne, Catherine and her husband became amongst the most powerful and influential families in Britain, and they remained in this very comfortable position throughout Edward's reign, though alongside Edward they fled to Burgundy when Henry was restored for that year. However, Catherine's fortunes changed completely with Edward's death in 1483. You'll be familiar with the story of the princes in the Tower and with Shakespeare's Richard III. Hastings worked to protect the young Edward V, but Hastings was executed on the orders of Richard, Duke of Gloucester, soon to become Richard III, allegedly for plotting against him. However, perhaps surprisingly, Catherine survived these tumultuous events with her reputation and her estates essentially intact. Richard himself signed a document confirming that Catherine would be protected and should retain her late husband's land and rights, which would then pass to their son when he came of age. This means that uh, Hastings' goods, including his books, which we'll come to, pass directly to Catherine. It's questionable whether Richard did anything further to protect Catherine's interests, but this move seems designed to draw a line under Hastings' execution and quell any dissent or sympathy for Catherine. Catherine herself remained in her position after the accession of Henry Tudor in 1485 until her own death in 1504, and her eldest son, also called Edward, inherited the Hastings' title, and he actively supports the Tudor cause against Richard, so Catherine's once again on the winning side. She didn't remarry, um, and she's buried at St Helen's Church in Ashby de la Zouchen in Leicestershire, close to the Hastings family residence at Ashby Castle, which is now uh, owned by English Heritage. So that's a very brief introduction to Catherine Neville, and for her books we have to turn to her will. Wills are often a great resource for finding out about medieval lives, particularly when biographical details are scant. And you can read Catherine's will for free online. I found it in a 19th century book called Testamenta Vetusta by Nicholas Harris, which literally means old wills. Catherine's will is dated November 1503, a few months before she died. It's largely concerned with her money and material goods, and it includes references to a few books, all of which are religious, and two of these are of interest to us here. First, Catherine states, I bequeath to my Lady of Shrewsbury, item, my primer, which is now in the keeping of my Lady Fitzhugh. So we've got two people here. Lady Shrewsbury is Anne Hastings, who was Catherine's youngest daughter, and Lady Fitzhugh is Catherine's sister, Alice, Baroness Fitzhugh. So these are really close family members. Then secondly, Catherine states, item, I bequeath to my son Edward Lord Hastings, also a fair primer, which I had by the gesture of Queen Elizabeth. Queen Elizabeth here could be one of two people. Most likely, she's Elizabeth Woodville, Edward IV's queen, but it's also possible she could be Elizabeth of York, Henry Tudor's queen, who had also died earlier that year. Both of these books are described as primers, which refers to the hour of prime, that is, the morning prayer. These are books of hours, which would contain the prayers and devotions to be said throughout the day. Books of hours are often luxury objects, beautifully illustrated, and they allow for intensely personal devotion. What's interesting here is that two books of ours have survived which contain signs of ownership by Catherine's husband, Hastings. One is at the Museo Lazaro Galdiano in Madrid, and the other is in the British Library as an additional manuscript 54782. This beautiful manuscript is known as the Hastings Hours. It's fully digitised on the library website, and if you Google Hastings Hours, you will find it. Uh, the book is only small, 
165 by 120 millimetres, and the text and illustrations cover about half of that area. So reading it's a really intimate experience. I should add um, a small note of caution. There's no way of positively confirming that the two books we have are the same two books as in Catherine's will, though it seems really unlikely to be a coincidence. The idea of one of them being a gift from the Queen is a problem, as there isn't anything in either manuscript to confirm this gift which we might have expected to see. However, we can associate the books with Catherine's husband, and while his will doesn't mention them, they are really personal volumes, and it, it makes sense that Catherine would wish to keep them after husband's execution. We also don't know what became of the Hastings Hours from Catherine's death until it appeared on sale in uh, 1910. In her excellent study of the book, uh, Janet Backhouse suggests it might have stayed in the family, and unfortunately I, I don't know if we know that for sure. But let's turn to the book itself. The Hastings Hours shows us a lot about uh, both Catherine and her husband. Its emphasis is really on the importance of Hastings' membership of the Order of the Garter, the chivalric order, founded by Edward III in 1348. The order still exists today, but it enjoyed a particular resurgence under Edward IV, who used it to consolidate his grip on power, rewarding those who, like Catherine and Hastings, had been loyal to him. Hastings was made a Knight of the Garter in 1462, following his contribution to the uh, victory at the Battle of Towton the previous year, which secured Edward's claim to the throne. And his marriage to Catherine in the same year helped to secure both of their positions at court. The manuscript itself was created around 1480 in Ghent or Bruges, um, where Hastings had travelled as a diplomatic representative for Edward, it's lavishly illustrated by an artist we actually know as the master of the older prayer book of Maximilian I. And the same illustrator is responsible for several other luxurious books of ours made for wealthy patrons, including members of Edward's extended family. The hours contain several indications of its ownership. The arms of the Order of the Garter are illustrated three times in the manuscript, each time enclosing Hastings' own heraldic device. This shows the family's pride in Hastings' membership of the order, which again shows how his and Catherine's political loyalty led to recognition and patronage. Dowers also include several generic chivalric images, such as knights jousting and a royal barge with a flag bearing the motto of the garter. And similar flags are depicted in other Flemish manuscripts made for Edward's followers, which marks their owners not just as members of the Garter, but as being loyal to Edward specifically. Now, although the Hastings Hours is a prayer book, I think these illustrations show us what's really happening here. The image of the family arms surrounded by the Garter also appears on Hastings' tomb. It's buried separately from Catherine at St George's Chapel in Windsor. And you can see that this book embodies him. So you can imagine Catherine's uh, desire to keep it after his execution. But the book's also a potentially dangerous political statement because it's so clearly linked to the Yorkist claim to the throne. Now, this is a really brief introduction to Catherine and the Hastings Hours. And although the book might sound like it's primarily associated with her husband, our only contemporary reference to it is in Catherine's will, and she was a widow for 20 years, which is far longer than the time her husband might have had this book for. 
The book speaks to the almost impossibly difficult position Catherine and many others found themselves in during the Wars of the Roses, and the challenge of simply staying alive in this period with the uh, shift of power. I think it's a, a minor miracle that this book has survived, and I think we can attribute that to it having specifically been Catherine's book. Thank you very much. Mildred Cecil was laid to rest in 1589, only a year after the death of her daughter Anne. The loss of daughter and wife was the catalyst for William Cecil, 1st Baron Burley, to begin work on a family mausoleum in Westminster Abbey. One of the Latin epitaphs on the tomb illustrates his sorrow through the prism of Mildred's devotional reading. Here is an English translation of a particularly interesting passage. Quote, not long after the death of the daughter, the mother followed, and though I never earnestly think of her without tears, there are, however, some things that seem to soothe my sorrow a little, namely, when I recall that she spent all her life in the study of sacred literature and the letters of holy men, especially the Greeks, such as Basil the Great, Chrysostom, Gregory of Nazianzus, and similar others. Now, it wasn't particularly uncommon for women to be remembered as pious readers on their funeral monuments. What makes Mildred's epitaph special is how specific it is about her reading practices. Not only do we find out that she read sacred literature, but we learn that she favoured the writings of the three hierarchs of Eastern Christianity, Basil the Great, Gregory the Theologian, and John Chrysostom. On her monument, Mildred's library is open to the viewing and reading public for scrutiny. It openly challenges ideas about reading as a private pastime. It suggests that the performance of female reading played an important role in the emergence of English Protestantism and its books. Matt has brilliantly illustrated to us that women use books to situate themselves in precarious political power struggles and that they preserve family networks by becoming keepers of libraries. Although the female reader is often seen as the passive counterpart to the active and potentially unruly woman writer, we have already begun to see that book ownership was an expression of social and political power. I want to trace these ideas further, into the early modern period and a time of drastic religious change. I want to argue here that the elevated status of reading in Protestant belief made women agents and overseers of the history of the English Protestant Church. In a belief system where redemption was meant to be exclusively found in the pages of scripture, reading could act as a conformist or reactionary display of allegiance with the Protestant cause. As the sole means of salvation, reading was not only the backbone of private meditation, but the foundation of communal and shared devotion in the church. In Elizabethan England, your devotional reading was never entirely a secret or inward-facing pastime, but always a highly politicised, pious performance. To investigate this further, I want to take a closer look at Mildred's epitaph in the context of her extensive library. Because Mildred dutifully inscribed the books in her possession, we know that she actually owned copies of works by all the authors mentioned in William's inscription. Her library included a 1556 copy of Basil's Morals, 
a volume of epistles by Basil Ignatianzus printed in 1528, Chrysostom's De Orandit Deum published in 1551, and a 1529 edition of his homilies on the Epistle of St Paul. Mildred married William, the Secretary of State to Queen Elizabeth I in 1545, and regularly acted as an intermediary between petitioners and her husband. We know that especially when it came to religious matters, she had immense direct influence on William's political and religious attitudes. The Catholic Spanish ambassador Guzman de Silva, for example, called her a, quote, much more furious heretic than he is. The extensive selection of theological tracts in her library appear even less out of place if we consider her upbringing. Mildred was born in 1526, the eldest of five daughters and four sons of Edward VI's tutor, Sir Anthony Cook. Alongside all her siblings, she gained an extensive humanist education and was taught the principles of emerging English Protestant belief. What we know of Mildred's collection of books suggests that she was proficient in Hebrew and Latin, while the historian John Stripe noted that she, quote, spoke and understood Greek as if it were English. As an adult, she distinguished herself as a writer. Several contemporary sources, including the scholar Roger Ascham, attest to her reputation as an accomplished translator. Her one surviving work gives us more reason to believe that her monument allows us a genuine glimpse into her bookshelves. It is a manuscript translation of Basil the Great's homily on Deuteronomy, which she com probably completed in about 1550. The homily tells us more about how she may have seen her reading as an influential act of pious communication. In her translation, she writes that, quote, God, which made us, gave unto us the use of speaking, to the intent we should discover one to another the counsels of our hearts, and by the communicating of our nature deal them to our neighbours, bringing forth our purpose out of the secret places of our hearts, as it were out of certain storehouses. To speak is to move ever closer to a perfect state of interaction where no purpose remains hidden in the secret places and storehouses of our minds. Including Basil's name on Mildred's monument turns her inward contemplation into an outward counsel of our hearts. Reading becomes a shared endeavour that invites our neighbours to partake in our purposes. William's act of sharing Mildred's library with us is not unlike an act of translation. Like Mildred, he encourages a shared experience of devotion that grants access to works that are secret, that is, out of reach and comprehension. G. Wright writes that Deuteronomy is not a juridical book prepared for the use of the judges, kings and priests of Israel, whose task it is to administer the law. It was written for the community, for the charge of Israel as a whole. The book's name derives from the Greek for second law and outlines the earthly reality of the agreement between God and his people. Put simply, it gives us practical guidance on how to live a good life according to God's laws and teachings. Mildred's choice of Deuteronomy 15 for her translation is particularly telling. Women were regularly discouraged from speaking using the sayings of Paul the Apostle. Instead, Paul's words encouraged women to learn quietly through reading and contemplation. As it says in 1 Timothy 2.11, let the woman learn in silence with all subjection. 
Mildred's chosen text by Basil complicates the view that female silence is always golden. Deuteronomy 15 is interested in finding the balance between when to speak and when to listen in silence. It expresses an unease about the loose tongue and inappropriate quietness. This is neatly summarised in the following passage from Mildred's translation. Take heed of thyself, lest at any time the secret and still word hid in thy heart becomes wickedness. Through Basil, Mildred explains that the still word, the thought and red word, isn't enough. When it remains secret, it breeds wickedness. Instead, tomb and translation make a case for sharing divine and moral truths. For Mildred, this process of turning outward meant that she disseminated her library widely. We know about this from a manuscript work by her husband titled Meditation Occasioned by the Death of His Lady. William lets us know that his wife's reading was intended to shape theological beliefs and practices of England's emerging Protestant elite. He notes that, quote, she provided a great number of books, whereof she gave some to the University of Cambridge, namely the Great Bible in Hebrew and four other tongues, and to the College of St. John's very many books in Greek, of divinity and physic, and of other science. The like she did to Christchurch and St. John's College in Oxford, the like she did to the College of Westminster. Distributing works to Cambridge and Oxford shows that Mildred's ostensibly private study of sacred literature allowed her to shape the education of those who would come to define the theological stance of the Church of England. She also gave books to Westminster's College of St Peter, which was refounded by Elizabeth I in 1560. It incorporated both Westminster Abbey and Westminster School and therefore put Mildred's great number of books on the desks of students and practising divines that maintained the coronation and burial site of England's monarchs. When we read about Mildred's favourite books on her epitaph, we don't just learn that she was a pious, pious wife and godly member of her community. We get a glimpse at the real power that books gave women in shaping the theological foundation of the English church. Her husband's efforts to make her role as a reader and patron known to the world using tomb and manuscript suggests that Mildred, the active, pious reader, was not doing something subversive. Rather, both husband and wife drew on existing ideas of the idealised female reader, those who learn in silence, to draw attention to the centrality of the book in an emerging belief system. The mutually supportive relationship of Mildred and William is perhaps best illustrated by one of the devotional works owned by Mildred, the 1528 edition of Basil and Natianzus's Epistles. Covered in brown and tooled calf skin, a gold border frames the names of the book's owners, William and Mildred Cecil. of December 1781 and 21-year-old Molly White is at home in Lambeth writing to her uncle. Agreeable to your request, she pens, I've written out the passages in Verstigan and Chaucer. She's referring to an early Jacobean book and a 15th century poem once thought to be by the Canterbury Tales author. Her uncle will eventually use this information in his best-selling book, calling Molly Sister Antiquary, while she'll work as an editor in a Fleet Street publishing firm 
and continued to correspond with family members on Piers Plowman, Shakespeare, Spencer and Milton. So who was this Georgian woman reader of medieval and early modern texts, and how did her research become part of a work still in print today? Well, in this short podcast, I want to explore the life and library of Molly White. By turning to her surviving letters, now held in archives in England and America, I'm going to virtually recreate her bookcase, reshelving what she read alongside the books of her father, uncles, brothers and husband. And as I do so, I hope to show not only how her reading and writing was a collaborative enterprise, but also how we can find the faintest traces of Molly's reading pressed into the pages of one of the greatest natural history books ever written. So let's begin with the earliest chapters in Molly's life. Born in London on the 10th of December 1759, she was the eldest of four siblings. By the time of her fourth birthday, she'd witnessed the birth and death of her sister Sarah and the death of her mother from childbirth complications following the delivery of twin boys, Tom and Harry, in 1763. Brought up by her father, she finished formal schooling when she was 14, whilst her brothers went on to attend Oxford. Yet Molly was not left behind in this highly literate family which pursued and published knowledge. Her father, Thomas Holt White, was a fellow of the Royal Society and published writings on Milton, Shakespeare and John Evelyn. Her uncle, Benjamin White, was the leading natural history publisher of his day and their brother, Gilbert, was to become the best-selling author of The Natural History of Selborne. First printed by Benjamin in 1789 and still in print today, Molly not only copy-edited Gilbert's text but also supplied information to her uncle for him to use as he wrote it. Yet her contribution to Gilbert's work is barely recognised. She exists in biographies of her uncle as a favoured niece who corresponded with him and sent proofs from the family publishing firm. But her letters reveal that she did far more than that. In fact, rereading her correspondence shows that she, like her family, had an inquiring mind, heavily engaged with the arts, antiquities, medieval and early modern texts and nature. So before we explore just how Molly contributed to Gilbert's book, Let's hear from the woman herself about her life in late 18th century London. We went to large party to the British Museum last Tuesday and were much entertained at the number of curious things we were shown. Though I think it's not quite so amusing as Shraston Leavers, where I went for the third time, Molly wrote on the 22nd of March 1779. So here she's referring to Ashton Lever's Eclectic Museum in Leicester Square, which housed about 27,000 objects, ranging from Persian slippers to fossils and shells, and from spears and knives to bird nests and seeds. And clearly she liked Lever's museum because she was on a third visit to it. Another frequent visit was to the Royal Academy Summer Exhibition, where she reflected on new works by Gainsborough, Reynolds and Johann Sophony, declaring, I can't say it pleases me, about Sophony's painting of the Sharp family. More to her taste was listening to Handel's Messiah and seeing Sarah Siddons perform. She seems to not only feel herself every word she speaks, but makes the whole house do the same, Molly wrote to her brother Tom in November 1782. Elsewhere, she regaled her brother with a tale of how she returned home from a trip to Greenwich, tolerably sober, notwithstanding the champagne. But let's not dismiss Molly's letters simply as evidence of a life well lived. Instead, interspersed with these accounts of her cultural life, we can also find evidence of her accessing, reading and using information from a range of classical, medieval, early modern and contemporary texts. In the letter I began this podcast with, she cites not only the medieval allegorical poem, The Flower and the Leaf, which was once assumed to be by Chaucer, 
but she also provides an extract from Richard Verstigan's 1605 antiquarian work that includes Anglo-Saxon names for months, a passage from Virgil where she contemplates alternative Latin translations, and finally an entry from a French-English dictionary on the type of cherry. So Molly certainly had eclectic reading tastes. In other letters she sends to Gilbert uh, an extract from an English translation of a French antiquarian work and a summary of the literature on the identity of the Pierce Plowman author, which includes the view of the 16th century polemicist John Bale, as well as the 18th century poet laureate Thomas Wharton, who, by the way, had been at school with her uncle Gilbert. So what we can start to see in these letters is just how wide ranging Molly's reading is and how confident she is in managing multiple sources of information for her uncle. And clearly, Gilbert trusts Molly because it's possible to connect her reading to his finished book. He takes the information she provides from Verstigan and the French antiquarian work and on the Pierce Plowman authorship question and incorporates it all into the natural history of Selborne. So she doesn't just copy edit his manuscript, she also informs the writing of it through her own reading and writing. And so, for me as a researcher who's fascinated by how texts are formed through collaboration in social and familial networks, I think it's really exciting to be able to recover Molly's contributions to her uncle's work. Through her letters, we can recreate a chain that links the text she's accessing in London to Gilbert's study in Hampshire, and then back again to the White family publishing firm on Fleet Street. And what's more, in this highly literate family, Molly is a conduit of information gleaned from multiple printed sources. She isn't a passive transmitter of domestic news. Rather, she takes an active role in engaging with her Oxford-educated uncle on numerous books and authors. And to understand the breadth of what she engages with Gilbert on, let's turn to him his letters to her. As you seem to be so well versed in Milton, Gilbert wrote to Molly in an undated letter from about 1783, before sending her a quotation from Milton's Samson Agonostes. This suggests that like her father and brother, who'd both published on Milton, Molly shared the family interest in the 17th century poet, as she did with the familial interest in Shakespeare. Writing to her brother Tom in March 1783, she told him, I am reading a new publication that entertains me extremely. The title is Dramatic Miscellanies, consisting of critical observations on several plays of Shakespeare. She goes on to say, Does not the title make you wish to see it? Pray endeavour if you can hire it, for I am sure you'll be extremely delighted with it. There are three volumes. And what's really interesting about this book recommendation by Molly to her brother is that a week later Gilbert also recommends the same book to a friend of his which gives us more insight into how reading in the White family was a shared endeavour across the generations. Elsewhere in Gilbert's letters to Molly, he refers her to Pope's Odyssey, Volume 4, page 75, book 20. Now, such an explicit page reference implies that Gilbert knew Molly had access to Alexander Pope's The Odyssey of Homer, thus adding a further work to our growing knowledge of books and authors in circulation in the White family. And the idea that there are certain books that have cultural currency in the family is reiterated by the shorthand that they use to refer to certain books. For example, Molly asks her brother if he knows the whereabouts of Plot's Oxfordshire and for him to check a copy of Percy's poems for a ballad she's interested in. Whereas Gilbert asks Molly, what says Dugdale? Now, all three references are to antiquarian books. The first is to Robert Plot's History of Oxfordshire from 1677. The second is Thomas Percy's 1766 Reliquies of Ancient English Poetry, supposedly including the remnants of a 17th century manuscript, and finally to William Dugdale's 1655 Study of Abbey and Monasteries. 
So what these three books tells us is that Molly is au fait with 17th century antiquarian studies and more contemporary texts that emulate that recovery of the past. And that realisation contextualises her reading of medieval poetry, Shakespeare, Milton, Thomas Wharton's History of English Poetry and Percy's Poems. Collectively, Molly's reading is aligned to the recovery of a national past and to the emergence of the English canon. Thrown into that, she's also reading Homer and Virgil in various translations. So it's no wonder that Gilbert called her sister antiquary. Like the other members of her family, she too was enthralled by the medieval and early modern past. So where was all this taking us? Well, I think there are a few ways that we can look at Molly and her books through her letters. Firstly, we can recreate her library and understand it to be full of antiquarian studies and medieval and early modern poetry, which gives us new evidence for how these works were read centuries after they were written. Secondly, her letters reveal how her reading informed the writing of the natural history of Selborne, and that gives us new insight into the collaborative family enterprise that produced Gilbert's work. Indeed, if Gilbert's book is, as Virginia Woolf once wrote, a door left open through which we hear distant sounds, the Molly's letters are a door through which we can glimpse the distant sights of Selborne's interior cultural landscape. And in that landscape, not only do we find a woman at art exhibitions, concerts and the theatre, we also find her deeply embedded within a family that wrote, read and printed works together. And so, as a coda to these three brief talks for Birkbeck Arts Week, I'd like to propose that what all three tell us is that books and texts are sociable objects and that their ownership wasn't gendered and prescriptive. Instead, books and manuscripts were familial possessions that circulate within kinship networks and were passed on between generations, creating new meanings for those that owned and read them. And deeply embedded in this circulation, whether in the medieval, early modern or Georgian periods, are women. Women who read works about religion, poetry, plays, and who deserve to be more than a footnote in the history of reading. So I'll end now by saying that, like Molly, we should all be sister antiquaries and look for more evidence of how women read and wrote in the past. <laughs>